Welcome to the Let's Be Cops podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie. Technology is constantly changing and evolving. With that come sophisticated ways of committing crimes. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the ever-changing world of DNA profiling and digital investigations. I have two guests today. Nicole specializes in digital investigations and Sarah specializes in DNA profiling. Why don't you both introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Nicole Trostic, and I'm an expert on digital investigations. And my name is Sarah Williams, and I'm an expert on DNA profiling. I would like to welcome both of you to the podcast. Let's start with each of you giving a little description of what it is that you specialize in. So Sarah, let's start with you. What is DNA profiling? In the words of Kimmel, the task of DNA profiling is to whittle this overwhelming quantity of genetic information down into one easily comparable profile. Essentially, once DNA is collected, experts are able to create a profile that links DNA to a certain individual. This is most commonly used at crime scenes. Investigators will collect samples of DNA from around the crime scene, take it back to the lab, conduct an analysis, then use that profile to find the person responsible for the crime. That is why it is so important that a crime scene is left undisturbed before the forensic investigators are able to arrive at the crime scene and conduct their investigation. Thanks, Sarah. That is very interesting. I find it amazing that we have come far enough to be able to create these DNA profiles of people. It must also make investigations a little more challenging for investigators because they have to preserve the scene of the crime, but it must be worth it because it's easier for those responsible to be caught. All right, Nicole, can you give us a description of what a digital investigation looks like? Yeah, of course. So first, I think it's important to understand what digital investigations encompass. So this can include anything from investigating the phones of distracted drivers to reversing malware installed in computers by hackers. And understanding this scope of activities is important to realize that not every digital investigation is going to be the same as the next one or the one before it. But typically though, there are five stages that happen in the process. The first is an identification stage where the sources of evidence and devices associated with it are identified. And then second, law enforcement must preserve this evidence before it can be deleted. Third is the collection stage where all of the evidence is brought into law enforcement's hands and now they have control over it. And fourth is the analysis of the evidence and this aims to provide conclusions about the case. And then the very last stage is that the reports are provided so that law enforcement can take the methods learned in this case and apply them to new cases in the future. So essentially, digital investigations are investigations that include law enforcement officials investigating devices that are connected to the internet. I feel like some people might feel that digital investigations may be invasive. I wonder if the trade-off for safety and security is worth the violation of privacy. So Sarah, we'll go back to you now and DNA profiling. Can you give us a brief history into DNA profiling and how it all began? So 1985 was when DNA profiling really started to take off. Alec Jeffries published a paper on the use of DNA analysis for the identification of humans. Before this, most of the tests they ran regarding the identification of an individual was based on an analysis of protein or blood groups. They realized that DNA was much more powerful than everyone had thought, and that is when DNA fingerprint analysis was born. DNA fingerprinting was hard to perform in the lab at that time, and oftentimes there were differences between the testing that was being done. They knew that this had to be improved in order to be able to use DNA analysis for using it at crime scenes and apprehending criminals. 
By the end of the 1980s, DNA profiling replaced DNA fingerprint analysis. A new technique performed by labs made it easier to conduct a DNA analysis on a small amount of DNA. Therefore, they only need a fraction of DNA to be able to tell who it belongs to. Experts can use fingerprints, semen, shed skin cells, hair, blood, saliva, sweat, mucus, and even earwax to be able to tell a person's DNA. DNA analysis experts are now working on being able to determine the geographic location of individuals based on their DNA, as well as predicting the physical appearance of an individual. This is important because if there is a stain found at a crime scene and that individual's DNA is not already in the database, then it is difficult for the police to identify a suspect. Experts want to be able to find a suspect for the police, even if their DNA is not previously in the system. Thanks for that, Sarah. So in your expert opinion, why is DNA profiling so important? And can you tell me about the advancements of DNA profiling? In my opinion, DNA profiling is so important when it comes to conducting investigations on people because it can be the answer that helps us find the perpetrator. I was able to take a class called Mean Justice in my third year university with Dr. Dowler, and this is when I really became interested in DNA profiling and exonerations. There are many people who have been wrongfully convicted and with the advancements in DNA profiling are able to be released and exonerated for a crime they never committed in the first place. Is there an example of a case that you can think of off the top of your head that highlights just how important DNA profiling is for exonerations? One case that I find to be extremely interesting and one that has stuck with me is the case of Kirk Bloodsworth. He was the first person to be sentenced to death and then be fully exonerated. He was charged and convicted of first-degree murder, sexual assault, and rape. He was arrested based on an anonymous phone call placed to the police. When the perpetrator was first described, he was described as over six feet, white, with blonde hair, he had a mustache, was skinny, and had tan skin. Bloodsworth was only six feet tall, had red hair, and weighed well over 200 pounds. There was no physical evidence that tied Bloodsworth to the scene, however, he was still convicted. While Bloodsworth was in prison, he learned about DNA testing and how it might be able to prove his innocence. He wrote numerous letters asking for the DNA to be tested to prove that it was not him who committed those crimes. The prosecution finally agreed to retest the DNA that was found in the victim's shorts and underwear. Once the lab tested the DNA again, they found that the results excluded Bloodsworth as a suspect. The FBI tested the DNA as well and found the same results. Bloodsworth was released from prison after spending nine years knowing that he was innocent. Since being released, he has written a book called Bloodsworth, which highlights his wrongfully convicted experience. Speaking of books, there are two other books that I highly recommend if our listeners are interested in wrongful convictions, exonerations, and DNA evidence. They are The Dreams of Ada by Robert Mayer and Justice Miscarried Inside Wrongful Convictions in Canada by Helena Kaz. Both of these books are brain teasers and will really make you question how investigations are conducted and the errors that are made during them. Wow, it's crazy to think that an innocent person had to spend time in jail and it all could have been avoided had DNA been tested in the first place. That time he spent in jail is time that he will never get back. Imagine all of the innocent people who have had to spend time in jail or who were even executed. Thank you for the recommendations on the books. I am sure there are listeners out there who would love to learn more about this topic. Are there any funds or organizations that people who feel they have been wrongfully convicted can access? One organization that I know of who has gotten many people exonerated is the Innocence Project. The cases they handle range in age and amount of time that the accused has spent in prison. 
They could have been in prison from anywhere from two years to 38 years. However, the majority of the cases have the accused sitting in prison between 10 to 20 years before they are exonerated. The Innocence Project has successfully exonerated 364 people. They have also completed 160 cases where an alternative perpetrator has been identified. Kirk Bloodsworth was the reason that the Innocence Protection Act established the Kirk Bloodsworth Post-Conviction DNA Testing Program. It provides funding for those who have been wrongfully convicted. I encourage those who are interested in DNA evidence and how it can be used to aid those who have been wrongfully convicted to Google the Innocence Project and read into some of the cases that they have been a part of and how DNA truly saved these people's lives. Well, thank goodness for organizations like the Innocent Project who are helping wrongfully convicted individuals regain their freedom. It's a shame that some are forced to sit in prison for so long. DNA really did save their lives, and it's important that DNA testing is done in order to prevent wrongful convictions. I can also think of a recent example involving a man named Nathan Sutherland. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Could you describe to us what that is about? This case comes out of Arizona, Phoenix to be exact. Nathan Sutherland was arrested on the suspicion that he had sexually assaulted a woman who was in a coma. The woman unexpectedly gave birth, and that is when the suspicion arose. Sutherland is a licensed practical nurse who is working at the care facility where the woman was impregnated. Once the woman gave birth, they checked the baby's DNA in order to find who the father of the baby was. Once the DNA was tested, it was found that Nathan Sutherland's DNA matched the DNA of the baby. Sutherland was charged with one count of sexual assault and one count of vulnerable adult abuse. I am very thankful that DNA profiling exists for the fact that this crime is wrong on every level, and if we were unable to examine DNA, the investigators never would have been able to find the person who committed this horrendous act against this woman. I've actually heard about that case, and I couldn't believe that something like that was able to happen in a facility that had the responsibility to take care of someone. I was glad to hear that they were able to identify the person who did it. That wouldn't have been possible without DNA testing. So now we're going to change topics here for a minute. Nicole, how have digital investigations developed over the years? Well, digital investigations have changed at the same rate that technology has over the years. Even back when there were only telephones, there were criminals taking advantage of phone lines to fool those on the other end. But since that era of simple technology, things have gotten a lot more intense. And as you follow along with the history of the internet and computers, you'll be able to see the subsequent developments in digital investigations along the way. So if we jump ahead into the 21st century and we think about the developments that took place over the internet, there have been a large number of avenues for crime. For example, cyberbullying made an even more noticeable appearance after the introduction of email and increasing popularity of social media. And also, piracy became a new concept when illegal downloads were available to the masses. And even more recently, cloud computing is a new concept that law enforcement have to look into more carefully. And these new developments like cloud computing bring about new issues with ownership, so who owns the cloud, and location, like is the cloud located in one specific spot. I don't think a lot of people realize that crimes involving the internet have actually been present for a while. A lot of people think that it's a recent occurrence when in reality this type of crime has been around for a long time. That being said, investigations into these crimes have also been around for a while. You're right when you say that digital investigations have developed as new technological crime has become more sophisticated. So, Nicole, why do you feel as though digital investigations are so important? 
So digital investigations are very important because our world is constantly connected to the internet and mobile devices. And as I said before, crimes are becoming more device-based and because of that, law enforcement has had to adapt to these changes. So in 2017, there were about 28,000 cyber violations, which is a huge number compared to about 15,000 in 2014. And digital investigations help keep the public safe and allow law enforcement to develop new methods to combat these crimes. So digital investigations can cover many categories of crime, which makes these procedures very versatile. So there are four categories of crimes that digital investigations can cover. So the first is crimes where their computer is the target. So this is crimes such as hacking. And then there are those that the computer is the instrument of the crime, such as identity theft. And then we have crimes where the computer is incidental to other crimes, such as money laundering. And then lastly, crimes associated with the prevalence of computers, such as music piracy. So digital investigations cover all of these categories of crime, which shows how important this process is when bringing perpetrators of these crimes to justice. So are there any specific case examples that you can share with us that can highlight the importance of digital investigations? An example of how important digital investigations are can be seen in the case of the Enron collapse in 2001. So Enron was an American energy company that became bankrupt when investors in the company risked more than they could afford in a market that didn't really support that kind of confidence. And it was found that the company was guilty of corruption and accounting fraud. And the way that this was found was through a digital investigation that analyzed large amounts of emails, data sets, and paperwork. So if it weren't for digital investigations, this activity would not have been uncovered through conventional investigation methods. So digital investigations are super important when we're trying to reach those far off corners that conventional investigations can't reach. So digital investigations are needed in order to deal with more sophisticated crime and crime that involves the internet. Types of crime that conventional investigations would not be able to uncover. So how does law enforcement deal with cybercrime now and what are the resources like? It always seems to be neck and neck. So sometimes the cyber criminals are pulling ahead and discovering new ways to commit crime and other times the police seem to have a good handle on the situation. And that's why technological advancements can be a good thing and also a bad thing because sometimes it improves law enforcement efforts or it can facilitate crime. So there was a 2014 report from Statistics Canada where cybercrime is mentioned as a new change in the crime landscape that law enforcement is developing new technological innovations to combat. And that seemed to be the time when the government realized how technologically advanced cybercriminals were becoming. And in terms of police resources, last year the government released their 2018 budget. And within this budget, the RCMP were given $80 million to strengthen frontline operations in the area of cybercrime. And the RCMP have amazing resources at their disposal to combat cybercrime, including the Technical Investigation Service. And what this service does is it specializes in digital investigations across Canada, and they recover data, reverse malware, run network systems analysis, and conduct computer forensics. So Canada has amazing resources for law enforcement, and these are always evolving and improving. I wonder then if this is why privacy laws are constantly changing, or even privacy rights when we use certain apps like Facebook and Snapchat, we always have to agree to their privacy policy. And actually, Snapchat just released a new privacy policy. So I wonder what your thoughts are on whether our rights are being infringed on or even violated. 
Would you say that digital investigations are infringing on individual rights? So with any investigation, whether it is digital or offline in the real world, there is a risk of infringing on someone's privacy. I wouldn't say that digital investigations infringe on individuals' privacy rights any more than a search of their home would. With that being said, digital investigations are unique since the individual usually has all of their personal information in their device. Another aspect to consider is how an individual's digital device can reveal information about other people as well. So information about friends and family can easily be accessed. So it's for these reasons that a debate is going on in the United States. Experts are arguing that investigators' ability to view everything on a suspect's computer violates their Fourth Amendment prohibition against general searches. So in order to ensure that everyone's privacy is being respected, it is important that only qualified professionals are conducting these investigations and maintaining a log of where the evidence came from, who found it, and who has access to it. You make a good point when comparing digital investigations to how you put it, real-world investigations. Searching someone's phone and house are both things that make people uncomfortable because both contain personal and private things. Now, Nicole, how effective do you think digital investigations are? I believe that digital investigations are very effective. It is obvious how effective they are just by looking at how prevalent they have become in recent years. So according to data from the FBI, in the year 2007, they conducted approximately 4,600 digital investigations. So in the span of four years, that number rose to approximately 7,600 investigations in 2011. That number, no doubt, continues to rise as technology is becoming more and more sophisticated. Okay, so that is actually a very large increase. So... Going back to Sarah now in DNA profiling, how effective do you think DNA profiling is? DNA profiling is extremely effective. The reason for this is the fact that DNA does not lie. If there is a competent and honest person examining the DNA from a crime scene, then the offender will be caught. So what can happen if the DNA is examined by someone who does not do their job properly? So DNA can be manipulated. For example, if there is an investigator who likes to make people happy instead of showing the true results, then it is quite possible that they will manipulate and lie about the DNA results in order to please the officer's wishes and who they want to be arrested. There is always a possibility for error and manipulation, but it seems that DNA profiling is quite effective and accurate. Okay, so now I want to bring you both together and ask you both to discuss how DNA profiles and digital investigations can be associated with each other. So it's amazing how well these two topics tie together. The first step to investing in cybercrime is exploring and making theories about who the perpetrator is, when it happened, how and if there is any way to prevent it. This exploratory process is a key feature of digital investigations, and DNA profiling is a method that can be incorporated into the investigation process later on when more detailed information is needed about the crime or perpetrator. Both DNA profiling and digital investigations can occur separately, but when they come together, the chances of a successful conviction are very high. So on their own, they are effective and important, but when they come together, they are even more effective. I was actually reading about a case the other day, and I thought it was interesting and that it ties in really nicely with today's topics. I'm not sure if you've heard about the Nikki Verstappen case, but for our listeners, I'll give a brief rundown on it. 
Essentially, Nicky Verstappen was a Dutch boy who was 11 years old when he disappeared on the morning of August 10, 1998 from a summer camp that he was attending. His body was found on the evening of August 11, 1998, 1.2 kilometers away. Despite an extensive investigation, the case remained unsolved for 20 years. They identified a man who was highly suspected of killing Nicky Verstappen, but he left the Netherlands in October last year, the same month as a large DNA kinship investigation was launched in this case. In April, the family's, uh, the suspect of the family reported him missing, and the family of the suspect sent various belongings to the police, including some of his clothes, and the DNA material um, that was on the suspect's clothes was compared to traces found on Nikki's body, and they matched. Recently, a child porn charge was also added to his charges of murder and sexual assault. Police clearly took possession of his items and searched his computer to warrant these child porn charges. So with that being said, it is because of both DNA profiling and digital investigations that this suspect was charged with murder and possession of child pornography. It is fascinating to hear this case because it really shows how DNA profiling and digital investigations can go together. Without the process of DNA profiling, they never would have been able to catch the perpetrator. Then, without digital investigation that was conducted, they would not have found that he was involved with child pornography. The DNA led the police to the suspect, which in turn, they were able to use his identity in order to charge him with another crime that he may have gotten away with. The challenge with cybercrime is that people don't really think about the consequences. They don't think that they're going to get caught because, you know, they're hidden behind their screens. They also might not be able to comprehend the damage they are doing, or maybe they know what they're doing, but because they can't directly see the results of their actions, they just don't care. So what do you think goes through the minds of people who are committing various types of cybercrimes? So Sykes and Matza developed a theory called the techniques of neutralization. And one of these techniques is that individuals neutralize their feelings about committing a crime. So they might make excuses to diminish their responsibility by saying, well, I scammed someone online because I needed the money. Like, it's not like I do that all the time. So when it comes to cyber crimes, people think that because they are online and not face to face that they aren't hurting anyone. When the reality is that even though the crimes are being committed behind a computer screen, there's still a major impact to those victims. They're denying that they are causing injury to the specific individuals in which they prey on. That theory is quite accurate. So many people do not think about the consequences or how it might hurt others when they commit any crime, and being behind a screen probably increases this. Well, we're out of time now, and I'd like to thank both Sarah and Nicole for taking the time to be here to discuss DNA profiling and digital investigations. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. This podcast was written by Sarah and Nicole and edited by Stephanie.